Hello, good people. Welcome to The Chris Stefanik Show, the show that helps you find the joy that God made you for in the midst of everyday life. Don't miss us every week as we dive into real issues with real people and answer real questions. God bless you. My friends, so good to have you with me. I've been looking forward to this show for a really long time. If you're a Catholic nerd, you know what distributism is. <laughs> but you've never actually heard it applied to real life. So uh, we have a, a, a great man of God who's running for Congress, who's actually got a plan to, to implement some of these Catholic principles into uh, economics, into everyday life. Thanks for being with us. Tim Reichert, thanks so much for being with me, man. It's good to be here. I've, Thank I've you been for looking forward me. to this. So have I. And I actually, I actually read your book in preparation for this. I can't believe you did it. Did it help you sleep? <laughs> no, it kept me awake. Uh, well, good. Yeah, it's, good. It's, it's, it's incredible. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, thanks. A lot of work went into that. Uh, I'm guessing your life has been nothing but a lot of work lately. Uh, it's been a lot of work for a long time. I say these days I haven't, I haven't worked this hard since I was 25 years old. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, That's so work. But before we dive into to economics and to distributism and to all that stuff, uh, I want to hear your story of faith because I know you're okay. you're you're a man of God. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, if you're watching, feel free to text your questions to seven two zero six five zero zero one zero zero. We will let you interrupt our conversation anytime with your text. I'll answer your questions. So tell me your faith journey. So I grew up uh, in northern Ohio, a little town called Norwalk, and my my father, both my the parents, of Dayton, where's no Cleveland, uh, Toledo rather, Toledo, okay. Toledo diocese, yeah, yeah. And, and my parents were uh, devout Christians, uh, and in fact, Catholics. They, there was a period where uh, they were, they were, we were sort of flirting a little bit with um, uh, evangelical uh, churches. But, I, you know, my parents, uh, very sensitive, I think, to the promptings of, of the Lord, and they felt the call back to Catholicism. Uh, my dad eventually became a deacon, but I, I remember, I talk about this a lot, I remember my dad, uh, I would be coming down the stairs uh, for school early in the morning, grab some breakfast or whatever, and he would always be there. He'd be reading his Bible mm. and uh, with his coffee. And um, that had a huge effect on me, just this, wow. this, the importance of beginning your day in prayer. And it wasn't just sort of, you know, hey, I'm going to say a few prayers, you know, mm. I'm going to utter a couple of prayers. It was, it was, uh, it was meditation and, and, you know, scripture reading. And, wow. Uh, so I think it started there. Um, I was uh, going to go to a, a liberal arts school in, uh, in Ohio called Wittenberg College. You may know that uh, Wittenberg is where, you know, Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses, so I'm okay. glad I didn't do that. Okay. My dad, uh, and my dad said to me, you know, uh, this is gonna be a really important decision. Yeah. I know you have a scholarship, you had a full ride to go there, and uh, he said, I, I know you want to go there, uh, but I want you to go to the Franciscan University of Steubenville. That's where I went. I know. Uh, uh, that, that's where you met your wife. That's where I met my exactly, wife. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, "Look," he, he said exactly that. He said, "You're probably yeah. going to meet your spouse in college." He said, "It will. It'll. It'll be the place that forms you more than almost anything else." Um, mm. And so I listened to him, uh, and I was. As my parents will attest, I was kind of a wild child. And so, uh, you know, it was there that uh, I, I had a meaningful encounter with my faith mm. and uh, met my wife. And, what what uh, gave you that meaningful encounter? Was it the community? Was yeah, it, a particular it really encounter? was. Yeah. To see the faith lived is an amazing thing, right? Yes. You go, you go to that campus and, and what you see is 
what human society can actually be like. Yeah. You know, uh, the Holy Spirit sort of injects grace into that place in a very special way. Yes, everybody's got their caricatures of what a Christian should look like, and it, and I'm sure yeah. you're experiencing this as you as soon as you let people know you're Catholic, it's like they they heap the caricatures upon you uh, in in a campaign. Yeah, sure, but, sure. But even growing up Catholic, you have these ideas of what it looks like, and maybe it'd be boring, or Jesus came to take our fun away. Then you go to the campus <laughs> Steubenville and see well, yeah. life to the full. Oh, yeah. it's joy. It's it's all it's all the joy God and made us for. Full is the right word. Yeah, it's there's a fullness uh, because of the fullness of grace. Right, grace perfects nature, mm. and you really see that on that campus. You know, the the cool thing about the Catholic Church, I think, is its diversity. My daughter says this. My daughter Megan says this all the time. Catholic means like, universal. It's ex exactly right. She, she says this all the time. She's like, look, if you look at, if you look at vice, mm. it's all the same. It's all the same. Mm. But you look at virtue, that's where all these different flowerings and manifestations of human nature really come from. Mm. And that was the first thing I, I, I saw at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, which really interested mm. me, you mm. know, uh, to see a place where Catholicism was embedded, you know, virtue mm. was deep in, uh, in the, the folks on that campus, and so was this flowering of creativity, diversity. Uh, it was an awesome thing for mm. me to see. So, yeah. Vice yeah. makes us all kind of the same. Makes us the same. It takes away the individuality. Yep. Yes, it does. Yes, it yeah, does. I'm gonna hold on to that image, too, of your dad reading the Bible over his coffee. Cool. It, it sometimes, um, you know, I, I put pressure on myself, like, am I doing enough raising my kids in the faith? Yeah. If they have the memory, which yeah. I, I know they see me all the time, every morning, Yeah. I'm up before they are, I got my coffee, I got my Bible. Yeah, right on. And that right just, on. that doesn't leave the memory yes. of a child. It, it's so true. That's it's powerful. So true. Yeah. All right, so that's the story of your faith. How about the story of politics? There, there's a calling involved in that. Right, where you, you feel like compelled yeah. to do something, because it's a sacrifice. They don't oh, call a public servant so. for no, yeah. no reason. Uh, so what, what made you decide to do that? Oh, that's a great question. So I think it's a combination of my, my academic training and then my, my, my state in life. So I, my undergraduate is in political philosophy. Uh, I have a doctorate in economics. And um, so I spend a lot of time thinking about economic issues, but also uh, philosophical issues. Thomas Aquinas is my patron saint. I love Aquinas. Uh, and uh, I read him a lot. And I, I think a lot about the price system, how it relates to Aquinas' thought. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, I've spent, I've spent my life uh, in the business world dealing with uh, policy issues, many of them tax-related. Um, economic policy issues generally. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think I've, I've uh, not only got a, a certain academic background, but also a certain career trajectory that put me in a position to think carefully about what a vision for human flourishing might look like. Mm. So when COVID hit, I had sold my last business, and this is the point about, uh, you know, where I am in my life. Yeah. Uh, I had sold my last business in 2018. And, uh, you know, my wife said to me, you know, you're not doing much these days, right? COVID, the, the, the business had slowed way, way down. Yeah. Uh, why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a manuscript about the 
decline of the middle class because I know you care. By the about way, it. where can people get this now? Because I really uh, genuinely thought I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, they can email me. Um, so we're, Rusty Reno and I are working on a revision of okay. the manuscript. Okay. And, uh, so I got to. Re it's not even out yet. So I got to read the. Yeah, you got to read I the first draft. Special right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and thank <laughs> you for reading it. Oh, it was really great. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Truly, thanks. Yeah. So you know, uh, COVID hits, and I said to her, "If we're not careful, this is going to be the nail in the coffin mm. for the American middle class." I've been watching it erode for 30 mm -hmm. years. I talk about this in the manuscript, as, yep. you, as you read. You know, there's probably six or seven main causes of that. Uh, and you know, our kids were all grown up. Our kids are age 20 to 28, and so I finished that manuscript. It started to make the rounds uh, in policy circles in D.C. Some members of Congress got it, and folks so started. Thinking, to I, say, I'm onto something here. Yeah, folks started to say, you ought to think about running. And I said, uh, no, I'm going to think about fishing, but thank you very much. <laughs> um, but I, uh, you know, Martha and I prayed about it for a good 12 months and uh, ultimately discerned that uh, this is where we're wow. called to be right now. Okay, so um, what excited me about reading your book, I, I, again, G.K. <laughs> Chazerton, Distributism, yeah. that the principle that people thrive and are happier when, when they, they own, own their stuff. Yep. And by their yep. stuff, I don't just mean that you're being greedy and acquiring things. Oh, definitely not, yeah. It, it, when you own the products you're making, the means of distribution, the, um, yeah. your, your the means of production, means of production, the, the yeah. ability to have a home, you, you start to care about where you live and all yes. the world becomes a better place. Absolutely. There's such a disconnect uh, that, especially young adults, you talk about your yeah. parish. It's like, a parish? Yeah. My, my what? I have nothing. Right. <clears throat> so you, you, you really, in your, in your book, and I think in your whole approach, you're, you identify a problem, an itch that's scratched by distributism. Um, yeah, yeah. Describe the problem that you, you lay out sure. as, as uh, being asset poor and that disenfranchisement and the, the yeah. despair it leads to. Uh, sure. Where does this come from? How, how is it getting worse and worse? Yeah, and so I think the, the, solution. the simple way of thinking about this is to think back to, you know, the, the time in which you and I grew up, right? I grew up in the mm -hmm. 70s. And, um, you know, pe people, the middle class owned stuff. They owned homes. They owned businesses. They had prospering main streets. They owned trucks. They owned tools, right? We had an ownership class. What, what uh, you know, uh, we used to call uh, at the time of the founding and in Great Britain a yeoman class, right? Small holders is what they used to be called. Yeah. Increasingly, that has gone away. We've moved m much more toward a state corporate model, mm -hmm. gigantic administrative state and gigantic corporations in league with one another, which, by the way, the original definition of fascism was state corporate economic model. And we've been moving more and more toward that over the past 30 years. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, I, I talk about these in the manuscript. I mean, one, one reason is... Um, International trade, particularly with China, has really harmed small business. It's really harmed uh, our manufacturing base, right? So we, we built the middle class really on four industries, retail, construction, farming, and manufacturing, yeah. high-wage manufacturing jobs. And we gutted a lot of that, uh, largely through trade with China. Uh, so we've had, we've had trade policy that's done a lot to erode the middle class. Uh, technology, right? Te technology has has been a, a major factor, especially recently. It, it used to be that capital augmented labor, right? Complemented labor. So the more capital you had, well, what was capital? Manufacturing capital, plants and equipment, right? The more capital you had, the more productive workers were, and the higher were wages. Now, so much of our capital is intangible, and in particular, 
software or AI that actually competes with labor, right? And so mm -hmm. we're in a place now where some capital, physical capital, still complements labor. Other types of capital, intangible capital, in, in, many, in many of its forms, competes with labor and drives down wages. So whole host of things, uh, many systemic, you know, monetary policy, I talk yeah. about that too, right? By pushing interest rates down to 5,000 year lows, people can't benefit from savings. So we're, we're destroying thrift, right? And so that too destroys ownership. So we've been destroying ownership for 30 years. And that's a bad thing because ownership is really kind of the first baby step toward virtue. Mm. Richard Weaver How's talks that? about How's this. That? Yeah, so there's a great uh, political thinker uh, called Richard Weaver. Yeah. Uh, he had a famous book called Ideas Have Consequences. And uh, in I think it's chapter nine of that book. He, he, he has, it's, it's the chapter nine is entitled property, the last metaphysical right. And his the main, last metaphysical right. Yes, and his main point is that property imprints on the soul. Ownership imprints on the soul. Why? Because if you own something, yeah. it, 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 it demands something of you, right? It, it imposes mm. psychic costs on mm. you when you, you let it decay, mm. right? And so, mm. so it's, it's, it's one of these, these things, ownership, property ownership, that uh, engenders virtue. And as we know, you know, grace perfects nature, right? Yep. So, so yep. the, you know, the theological virtues happen on top of the natural virtues, right? Mm -hmm. And so property is very, very important to the natural virtues. So you start to invest in protecting yep. what you have. And yep. again, most skin people, in the game, right? You got right? skin, in the, skin game. in the game. Most people think that's leading to greed. No, it's leading to, to me turning outside of myself. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's funny you say it that way because Weaver also talks about that. That yeah. that, that it, it it turns the soul instead of inward, outward. So. Oh, you know, just like every vice leads to slave, to some kind of slavery. Servitude, yes. Right. Um, not turning outside of myself in that way, uh, and, yeah. and have, having a, a world where you don't own anything, where you're not mm -hmm. taking care of anything. Yep. I mean, we got those young adults who are in six figures. They're renting their houses. They don't have CDs. Yep. I mean, it's just a stupid example. Yep. It, literally everything is is just temporary, yep. owned by the cloud, owned by someone else. Yep. Uh, and it leads to what you 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 describe as a new kind of serfdom. Yeah, it's a new serfdom. That's exactly How is right. That? Well, so uh, you know, I have, I have a friend who likes to say that um, we are very we uh, younger generations are very similar to Russian serfs. Better fed, better clothed, but they don't own anything, mm -hmm. right? Think about, think about uh, the, this sort of globalist thesis where we say to younger generations, you're not gonna own anything, mm. but you'll be happy. The opposite is true. Mm. If you don't own anything, eventually uh, it leads to unhappiness. Mm. Uh, and and you know, by eroding asset ownership and moving more and more toward asset poverty, we're moving more and more toward a society that's less and less happy, it's less and less uh, equal. We have a smaller and smaller middle class and it's more and more divided. Mm. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say this, this idea of asset poverty is a very important one. You brought it up earlier. Yeah. And the idea is that um, one of the most important ways we should be measuring poverty is based upon ownership, you know, ownership of assets. And if you take the middle 60%, you know, you rank Americans on uh, asset ownership, and you just take the middle 60%, which is a working definition of the middle class. Yeah. Um, the net worth of the middle 60% is just extremely low and getting lower all the time. Mm. And that's, that's asset poverty, you know, less and less ownership. We'll be happy, well-fed serfs. Yeah. Uh, I, was, yeah. I was reading an article the other day, showed a really extreme example of this. Um, I have a lot of good friends and uh, good Catholic friends in Hawaii. 
Ah, yeah. The the island of Lanai, right? It's, yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's capitalism that's spun out of control. You got people who have lived there for 700 years in these islands. Larry Ellison now owns 98% of an island. Ah, oh, jeez, yeah. And no one elected the dude. Yep. A third of the housing he owns. He owns all the industry. So people are working for him and then giving him money back to rent the houses from him. Yep. He owns the grocery stores. <laughs> They're yep. buying. He owns, he owns the news outlets. Yep. Uh, and, you know, it's like the old factory town, right? Exactly, yeah. right? The, the old mining towns where the mining company owned it all. Yep. Right? It's a, it is. It's a form of serfdom. Yeah. Right? And now, of course, you see large private equity firms going around the country buying, in some cases, entire neighborhoods of single-family homes to convert them into rental neighborhoods. I mean, wow. what are we doing? It's like Victor post-Victorian England, right? I mean, it's crazy. it makes no sense. So yeah. a lot of people look at this and they sense the, unfair, the inherent unfairness of it. Or they yeah. sense that they feel disenfranchised. Right. And then uh, there's, there's a growing leftist movement because they, mm -hmm. they think this is unfair. The solution, therefore, um, I mean, the, the starting point for Marxists and for distributists is the same starting point. It's a recognition of an unfairness. Of inequality, yeah. Right, and, and, and they go to this leftist extremism, which sadly ends up with the state owning anything, everything instead of corporations. It's the same problem. No, exactly. no people own anything. Um, well, some people do, right? Yeah, Bu just a couple do. people do. Bureaucrats do. Right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, and one of the reasons I was really excited reading your book is like, oh, this is the this is the normal, everyday. Guy. I wouldn't even say conservative. This is like where most people would see the solution and think, well, I don't mm -hmm. I don't want to go unchecked capitalism, yeah. and I don't want to go Marxist because well, half of the ancestors of people living in America yeah. right now escaped Eastern Europe. My, my yes. own family half Slovak. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there's only one you got a solution at, that's it rejects both extremes. There's only one antidote to socialism, and it's ownership. I say it all the time. The, the antidote to socialism is ownership, and we need more of it, and it needs to be pushed down and spread around. Mm. And that's what, that's what my policy proposals are all predicated on. And it's really, as you say, it's distributism, but it's distributism thought through by an economist uh, in a way that uh, results in a set of policies that are politically feasible uh, and, and attractive. At least I hope so. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you more about how that comes about and becomes a reality. A question just came in. How do you prevent greed within ownership? Hmm. There's obviously the, 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 the balance, right? Sure, of course. How do you prevent greed? Yeah, I, look, I don't think there is a way to prevent greed, right? Greed is part of human nature. It's a vice. Um, uh, but I would, I would argue that, um, uh, you know, property ownership certainly does both. But that's what God gave us when he gave us our freedom, Right. He said, look, I'm going to give you this freedom. You can use it for, uh, for virtue or you can use it mm -hmm. for vice. Ownership is the same, right? So without a doubt, uh, as with all good things, uh, they can be abused. And it's not for government, it's not for policy to prevent that. Um, uh, it's, it's, but, but I would say Richard Weaver is right that um, smallholders tend not to be greedy. You know, The middle mm -hmm. class wasn't a greedy class. The middle class was a flourishing, prospering middle class, right? People who They're own happy. homes are happy. They're happy going out and working in their yard, taking care of their lawns, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's not, it's not as if we can prevent it, but I think we should recognize that for the most part, ownership of property engenders virtue more so than it does vice. Non-ownership, I would argue, is what engenders greed. Mm. 
because mm. it engenders, you know, a kind of um, a kind of jealousy or kind of envy. Mm. Right? So, and also a natural desire to have some sort of yeah. security. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. And I, I, I think of, you know, I know that I have friends in Hawaii who are who would disagree with me having a problem with what's happening in Lanai, for instance. Mm. Um, yeah. But the the because the, the people there, well, they they have more money because there's a resort there now. Mm. Yeah, but they're not as happy. Yeah, I, I, I suspect I, I, that that's right. Right, I'd I'd, yeah. I'd rather have half the amount of stuff and have some control over my own destiny. Yeah, but when I think of an example that extreme, or where I think a lot of us are heading now, where where mm. people I didn't elect suddenly have control over what I say on social media, and yeah. you know, it's like wow, yeah. the, the yeah. I, I didn't know that these people were in charge of my life. There's corporations that are yeah. bigger than. Than, uh, than, than different countries who are operating in my yep. life and, and, and influencing policy in different states and exactly they can right, push yeah. buttons without anyone voting. Uh, how do you overturn this without uh, a Marxist proletariat revolt, without yeah. violence? How do you overturn these kind of things? And I'm guessing it's, it's the long road sure. over time, but sure. what are some practical things you're, you're, you're pushing for? So, you know, I, I look for traditional pathways into the middle class that have been increasingly closed off over time. So I'll give you a few examples. Let's take small business, right? Yeah. So we talked about this state corporate model earlier. Um, the code of federal regulations today stands at 200,000 pages and counting. Most people don't realize this, but the vast majority of that 200,000 pages was either lobbied for or actually written by large corporations. Why? Mm. Because the cost of regulatory compliance is a fixed cost. So GE or Walmart or whomever, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pointing directly at them, yeah. but large corporations can take regulatory compliance costs and spread them out over billions of dollars of revenue. But yeah. what are they doing, really? Why are they for these regulations? Because they're Crushing buying me. market share, yeah. right? It's a way for them to protect their markets from yeah. the little guy. So I say, look, let's have small rules for small business. Let's have a separate regulatory framework for small business written on whatever, 500 pages, 300 pages mm -hmm. or less, so that a, a person, a, a man or woman who wants to start a business in their garage can understand the federal regulations that apply to them in an evening, right? Yeah. And by the way, that would have the side effect of decreasing the rate of growth of regulation because if large corporations had to eat their own cooking and they didn't get the incumbency benefit, they'd do a lot less of it, right? They'd yeah. write a lot less reg, right? So, so that's, that's one. Another is ESOPs. I, think, I literally I think, took a deep breath as you said that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah. oh, could you imagine that? I mean, I have a small yeah. business. I have a small nonprofit. Yep. I have a small for-profit. Yep. And it's like, I have sure. a constant sense that I'm breaking some rule. Totally, like, you are, you, and, you and are. I'm, I'm sure I am. None of us knows, none of us. Can, there's no human mind can possibly comprehend the laws that apply to them in modern America. It's amazing. It's not possible. Yeah, it's not possible. Mm. You think about Aquinas, right? He, he, he says one of the conditions for law to be law is that it must be promulgated, right? Mm -hmm. Promulgated means announced and understood. Like, that's not true of the 200,000 pages no. of the Code of Federal Regulations. Anyway, a, a, another example is, um, is I, think, I think any transaction by which a business owner sells his or her business to their employees should be tax-free. So ESOPs, employee stock option plans, are an example mm. of that. Why? Because most business owners do what I did. They'll sell their business to a private equity buyer or a strategic buyer, because you can get a higher multiple. You can get a higher, a higher you know, price for your business. If we made transactions, sales to employees tax-free, it would level the playing field. And we would transform employer-employee relationships, first of all. We would make employees owners 
And again, that's the yeah. antidote to socialism, is ownership. It's the only antidote to yeah. socialism, is more ownership. So, it, it, It's so, the antidote to both extremes. Yeah, yeah. I also think monetary policy. I, I talk in, my, in my, uh, uh, my manuscript about the way in which monetary policy, by driving interest rates down to 5,000-year lows, and look, there are demographic reasons yeah. for this as well, but by driving interest rates down to 5,000-year lows, we eliminate thrift, right? So compound interest is an unbelievably powerful thing, right? Mm -hmm. Saving and growing that savings over the course of a lifetime is unbelievably powerful. Mm. But you can't get that benefit at interest rates that are, you know, two, three, four percent. You mm. don't, right? And so we need to have monetary policy that recognizes the importance of thrift, of savings, allowing, yeah. you know, a smallholder to put some money away every year and, and gain the benefit of that compound interest because Tim, of how powerful it is. where can people read about this, these practical applications of distributism? Because not, not everybody is, um, is, is in Colorado uh, sure. hearing your, your campaign speeches. By the way, for the record, we're a nonprofit. We can't endorse uh, a, <laughs> a, a candidate. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm talking about Catholic principles that I really want everybody to be familiar with. Sure. Sure. Uh, so where can where can we read about all this stuff? Well, hopefully it'll be published. The the book is in revision right now, and uh, okay. we've had some conversations with uh, a couple of uh, publishing houses. Um, so uh, Rusty Reno at First Things and I are are working on okay. a revision to it. There was also um, a good article I read. Yeah. Um, oh, Newsweek. Yeah, that's right. Newsweek. So Rusty and I did an article in Newsweek. Okay, so Google oh, Tim Tim yeah. Reichert Newsweek, and it sums yeah. up a lot of these principles great, and great, how to apply them. Yeah, great recollection. Yeah, I had uh, forgotten about that. I had a uh, I had a great uh, question come in about um, you know the division between church and state. Yeah. Okay. Hit me. And I and I know that you've um, you've been attacked because well once it comes <sighs> out that you're a devout Catholic. Yeah. People think you're a radical. That you're pushing for a theocracy that soon will have compulsory uh, mass attendance and yeah. um, and uh, contraception burning parties, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah. what what's the difference between uh, uh, building a theocracy and having your principles as a Catholic inform public policy yeah. without becoming theocratic? Where's the line drawn? How do you yeah. how do you calm people's fears? Sure. Well, so look. You, you read the scholastics on this, they talk about two potestas, right, two powers. Mm -hmm. One is church and the other is state, right? And so the state has a legitimate sphere of authority, right? God-given legitimate sphere of authority. And, um, you know, separation of church and state uh, exists for a reason. It's very important, right? Because um, uh, theocracies do tend to devolve in, and they devolve in bad ways. So now, look, yeah. I mean, uh, what's what's happened to me is very interesting. You know, the the progressive left is trying to uh, kind of make this a Catholics need not apply election because I've done a lot of writing yeah. on the economics of contraception. Uh, yeah, and I was proud to do that. Right as a as a Catholic, as a Roman Catholic, I I wanted to 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 write a, a piece which I did in First Things right. on why the Church's position is reasonable. Uh, and yeah. so, turns out my argument is essentially the same argument that Janet Yellen made in 1996 in a very famous quarterly journal of economics okay. uh, <laughs> uh, piece. A lot of this like, stuff, it, it's painted to be radical, but if you, if you left a kid alone in the forest to be raised by wolves <laughs> and said, what do you think God's plan is for your, yeah. for your body when it comes to sex and reproduction yeah. and yeah. a healthy society, he'd probably yeah. guess all the stuff that we're teaching. Uh, right? He might, but, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he might, yeah. So, so no, I'm glad. I'm glad uh, that that the question comes up because, you know, look, I think as a Catholic, we're in a unique as Catholics, I should say, we're in a unique position yeah. 
to offer my party, the Republican Party, a way forward for the middle class. Why? Because we have this distributist understanding. We have this understanding mm -hmm. because of Catholic social teaching of, you know, how to construct an economy for the middle class, how to construct an economy with a vision for human flourishing that actually makes sense. Um, and that's not, that's, that's by no means a, a um, you know, a, a theocratic idea. No. It's an idea that's predicated on 2,000 years of really philosophical, uh, political, and economic reasoning that comes out of our tradition. Mm -hmm. So that's really what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's the same set of traditions that built Western civilization. Yeah. And, and, uh -huh. and I thank God that people uh, didn't prevent the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. from letting his faith ah, inform amen. his public policy. What a great point. Right? Yeah, right uh, it, uh, he did not yeah. march as a, uh, a humanist, secularist, uh, atheist what a, that's guy. That's a great point. It was, it was all yeah. about his faith. Yeah. Um, I, I want to end where, where we started, really, uh, back in your faith, because uh, I'm sure your faith will tie into this, this question and how you answer it. Uh, what keeps you going? Because I'm, I'm sure it can be exhausting. Oh, uh, yeah. Because you, you put yourself out there, you yeah. got slings and arrows coming at you immediately. Uh, so, uh, you know, two people. One is, um, one is my wife. Uh, you know, Great lady. She, yeah, yeah, she was, uh, she was uh, at, she's on the board of Thomas Aquinas College, so she was out there this past weekend. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing how hard it was uh, for me with her out there, you know? I mean, she's, she's just, uh, she really is just, she's the wind behind my sails for sure. So she's number one and, and number two, well, I should say she's number two, and number one is Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, you know, she is the patroness of the Americas. Mm. Uh, I committed and consecrated my campaign to her. Mm. And uh, uh, she's, uh, we have the statue of her. Uh, it's about a 200 year old statue in our home. Mm. and. Uh, I get up in the morning, I'm a little groggy, I you know, kind of waddle my way over to the coffee maker to turn it on, but I pass her and I, you know, I, I say a prayer for uh, my district every morning to her. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Praise God. So, yeah, amen. Hey, I'll be praying for you in your campaign. You. I invite you guys to pray for Tim. Thank you yeah, so much for being you. with me and for everything you're doing oh, right now. Oh, this was great. Thanks and, for having me. And I me. love your, yeah, I mean, just to, to sum up one of the most important things, that this is about human flourishing. Whether you're running a business, whether you're engaging in politics, thinking your way through how to apply um, you know, Catholic principles to economics, uh, whether you're working in science, production, whatever you're doing, all these things. Society works right when you first ask that question, what helps human beings thrive? Yeah, what is human flourishing? Because Amen. all the gears of society exist to serve human beings. Humans aren't cogs in the gears of society. And that's when we get it all wrong, we forget yeah, that. That's right. And that's so right, thanks right. for, for um, exploring ways to, to make that concrete oh, thanks, reality. Uh, yeah, thank you, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah God bless you guys. Do. Thanks for watching. Yeah, thank you. Man, wasn't that great? Listen, if you don't want to be happy, be sure not to subscribe. But if you want a more joyful life, the kind of life that God created you for, the kind of life Jesus promised when he said, I came to give you life to the full, then make sure you hit subscribe and share this channel with everybody you know.